I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in the refugee crisis and the impending food crisis in Ukraine, we have with us Caitlin Welsh, who is the director of the CSIS Global Food Security Program. And we have with us Jake Kurtzer, who is director and senior fellow with the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda. Jake, I want to go to you first, because we now know, as of today, Tuesday, March 15th, that there's about 3 million refugees who have left Ukraine and have poured into Poland and Hungary and other places. Can you give us a sense of what's happening? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. The Russian military tactics in this conflict have been designed to sow terror and fear in the hearts of the civilian population by deliberately attacking civilian infrastructure, including apartment buildings, but also hospitals. The Russians are compelling people to flee their homes. The numbers that we're talking about that have crossed the border are in some sense the lucky ones. They've been able to escape and seek refuge in neighboring countries who have been very gracious in opening their national borders, but also the populations of those countries have been very gracious in receiving them. In the long term, numbers of that size will put a strain even on the most welcoming countries. And so the United States and the European partners of those countries that are hosting those refugees need to be very creative and very ambitious and very quick in providing the financial resources to those host governments and the host communities, but also to ensure that they have the political and diplomatic support to host those populations for a long time. I think at the onset, we thought people may be able to go back quickly, but the levels of destruction inside Ukraine right now suggest that Regardless of what happens in the course of the violence, this refugee and displacement crisis will persist for a long time. Yeah, the the photographs and video that we're seeing is astonishing. I mean, last week we saw a New York Times photograph of a family that was fleeing Ukraine that was killed in the crossfire. You know, clear proof that civilians are being killed. We know that the port city of Mariupol is currently under siege with an estimated 2,500 civilians already killed. What can we expect in terms of civilian casualties going forward? And how many more refugees are actually going to be able to get out, in your view? I mean, Ukraine's a country of 40 million people. It's hard to predict the number of refugees, I think, both because it's going to be contingent upon the tactics and the course of the violence, but also because the Russians are now targeting locations in Western Ukraine, which I think will create a certain amount of pause in people's willingness to use those um, directions to escape. So I fear that we might see higher levels of internal displacement inside Ukraine, which are in many ways harder to track because you don't have those mechanisms like borders and like reception centers. You rely on data collection by organizations or self-reporting. Mariupol in particular um, is, is a real tragedy. And, you know, the numbers of people that have been able to get out either by taking a chance or through the brief moments of pause are not very high. And I think there really is a, an urgency for the people in that town, because what you're talking about now is, you know, we call it sometimes reverberating effects. 
it's not just the initial attack, but it's a disruption of the water systems. It's a disruption of the sewer systems. You're talking about lots and lots of you know dead bodies laying out. We've seen that they've gone to voluntarily using mass graves to get bodies in the ground because otherwise you run the risk of waterborne and, and diseases like cholera and, and others. And so there's a real, I mean, it's in some sense, it's medieval what's happening now. And so there's a real urgency both for people to be allowed to flee, but also to get in there and begin that process of really basic cleanup and humanitarian response. You know, despite the weapons and the technology, this really is feeling medieval. Caitlin, I want to turn to you. So for the Ukrainians who are still in Ukraine, like in Mariupol, how are they getting access to food? Thanks, Andrew. It's a great question. Thanks again for having me. The answer to that question is becoming more and more difficult. What we're seeing, um, including overnight, is Russia attacking markets, and they're also attacking food warehouses. So where where farmers used to bring their product before it would go to market, um, Russia is bombing those places. Russia is also targeting Ukrainian agriculture. So, for example, in the middle of a very active agricultural season, there needs to be activity at night. Tractors need to work at night. That requires lights, of course. And so farmers are hesitant to do that activity at night because it's easier for Russians to target them. Oh, God. so they can't even plow their fields because they they become a beacon for Russian artillery. Yeah, certainly, certainly. It's a good question to look at impacts of the war on Ukraine's agriculture sector. So one thing that we've seen, and this is new since the last time that I talked to you, is USDA has estimated that of agricultural products that have already been harvested and that are in silos and ready to go, ready to be shipped out because of the war, Ukraine has lost about 17% of its wheat export product. And that's their main export. That's their main export. That's wheat that was harvested and ready to go. Of the wheat that was planted last fall and prepared for export this coming summer, estimates are that about 20 to 30% of that will be lost because of, for reasons that I just mentioned, including many others. And then the, the biggest question is what about the crop that's expected to be planted in later this year in 2022 for harvest in 2023? So, Caitlin, I, I want to ask you, the war's impact on global agriculture and food security what is the scope of the problem that this is causing as you see it today? Yeah, the scope is massive. We have some new analysis out from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization as of a few days ago. When it comes to wheat, there are 26 countries around the world that source over 50% of their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. And those are countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia and South, a South Asia, Middle East, North Africa, in Europe. And a number of those countries are already food insecure. Those are likely to be first affected. But it's not just wheat, um, oil seeds as well. So Ukraine and Russia account for over half of global sunflower exports. When those exports are squeezed, countries switch to consuming more of other types of oils. So that means that prices of other oils are going to increase. Palm, soy, canola oil. Maize is also a main export of Ukraine and Russia. That's used as a feed for animals. When those supplies get squeezed, that means, again, you turn to other sources of feed. So those feed prices will increase and animal and meat prices will increase. And finally, fertilizer. Russia is the top exporter of a number of types of fertilizers, and that's going to affect farmers around the world, low and middle income countries, wealthier countries in the U.S. everywhere. We'll be affected by not getting fertilizer from Russia? The price of fertilizer in the United States is set to increase because of this conflict. I see. I think it's important when it comes to fertilizer to emphasize that this affects the crops that I just mentioned. It affects crops around the world. So just as one example, Brazil is the world's top producer of sugar, coffee, and soybeans. 
they are the most reliant on fertilizer imports to produce those crops. Everything that uses sugar or coffee as an ingredient is the price is set to increase. So the way that I think about this is imagine you have a, a table that's set for a meal and someone takes the tablecloth and, and shakes it like this. There's nothing that's untouched. That's how I think about the effect of this on agricultural production in every region around the world. Unlike other major conflicts like Syria, there is an internationalization of food insecurity because of this crisis. Can you explain what that means? Certainly. So again, over 26 countries source over half of their wheat from Ukraine. And again, Ukraine's agricultural productivity is thrown into question because of this conflict. Many of the countries that rely on Ukrainian wheat and also from wheat from Russia are already food insecure. Those are countries, again, in sub-Saharan Africa, across North Africa and in the Middle East, when they are no longer able to source their food from their known supplier, they'll have to switch suppliers. That has a cost of time, price, where there is already acute food insecurity existing. And so, for example, the World Food Program is ensuring food security. The World Food Program itself sources over 50% of its wheat from Ukraine. So for the World Food Program, the cost of food aid is increasing. Its own dollar won't be able to go as far. So what you what you have is food insecurity increasing in Ukraine for the reasons that we talked about, but also in regions far outside Ukraine, where food, there was already food insecurity, it's only set to increase. Wow. Jake, I want to go back to the humanitarian issues. Currently, are any humanitarian corridors open for Ukrainian civilians to escape Mariupol, for instance? And are the Russians going to let them leave? There have been intermittently moments where safe passage has opened up and civilians have been able to flee both Mariupol and other cities. The terminology humanitarian corridors encompasses a wide range of things. There is nothing permanent now, no safe passage or safe zones, for example, for civilians. The Russians are not going to allow people to flee in safety and in dignity. The entire premise of their military campaign so far has been targeting civilians and sowing fear and terror. And so even while we think or hear about negotiations around humanitarian corridors, I think it's extremely important to be very, very wary of Russia's intentions and their desires to exploit the humanitarian imperative to get people out to try to extract either concessions or diplomatic you know, negotiations to generate propaganda victories, to exploit those moments for a security purpose, or to encourage people to flee and then to target them as they do so to continue that you know, campaign of terror. Caitlin, can the United States and the West get food supply in at this point? We're able to. We don't rely on imports of foods to meet our immediate needs the way that other countries do. But what's going to happen in the United States and in other wealthier countries is that, again, food prices are going to rise because exports are squeezed, um, supplies are lower. Energy prices have soared. Again, agricultural inputs, the price of fertilizer has increased. So for a variety of reasons, food prices are set to increase. Um, it might not happen as soon in the United States as it happens in other countries, but it will happen. And again, in the United States, it's going to happen on top of record high food price inflation. Likewise, around the world, last week, the UN FAO released data about global food prices, saying that global food price inflation had reached an all-time high. This was in February. The conflict had just started, so that had influenced that inflation. But again, this war couldn't happen at a worse time when it comes to food prices around the world. Is it possible for the United States and Western allies to get food into 
Ukraine right now to help these people who are starving, who are looting, who are, you know, falling into this chaos? We've heard reports that the WFP, the World Food Program, has stepped up its logistical and operational capacity to bring food in. WFP is a big buyer from Ukraine and Russia. So there's going to be, in the long term, there's going to be a shock. In the short term, they have warehousing capacity and they have some resources to be able to bring into some parts of Ukraine. But accessing the places that are hardest hit are going to be extremely difficult again because of the ongoing hostilities, because of Russia's history of targeting humanitarian convoys. Yeah. And there have been reports of them doing that now. Is, Is there truth to that? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, Russia has demonstrated, in some sense, it's a very perverse military strategy, but denying access to medicine and food is part of it's it's fundamentally is part of the siege tactic. So it's not just encircling the city and not letting people out, but it's also about not letting goods in. So I think right now there are resources in neighboring countries and in Western Europe that can be brought to bear. But, you know, one of the second order things that's going to happen here is people are going to receive some sort of food ration, but it's not going to be the foods that people are accustomed to. And that's going to happen in Ukraine, but it's also going to happen in the countries that Caitlin mentioned where, you know, food aid is going to be of a different type and it's going to be really disruptive. What's being done to make sure that this humanitarian aid is actually reaching the people in need? You can sort of look at this as concentric circles. There are local civil society organizations, both in neighboring countries and within Ukraine, that have a long history of working in their communities that are at the front lines of the response, both in Donbass, um, where they were working for the past eight years, but other you know church groups or neighborhood organizations. I think right now the move is to try to funnel financial resources to those organizations to enable them to do whatever it is that they can do while they're working. The, you know, the second circle is is the international NGOs, the, the non-governmental organizations like the, you know, the, the big names who are setting up shop in neighboring countries and starting to try to open up operations. And again, we'll work with with partner organizations, but again, limited by the security, you know, the, they have a duty of care for their own staff, but also if you can't travel. And then you have the big international organizations like the UN agencies and also the International Committee of the Red Cross. The ICRC continues to operate inside Ukraine and is continuing to try to do the best they can, but they have some 50 or 60 staff, as of the other day, also trapped inside Mariupol. So everyone here is essentially dealing with the same prevailing circumstance. So what's needed now, I think, is to just make sure that those organizations know that when they can work, they'll have the resources to do it and to try to create the political space for them to do whatever they can do. And that includes not letting the humanitarian part of this challenge get drawn into high-level diplomatic games that Russia might play at the UN Security Council or elsewhere. Why is Mariupol such a strategic point for Russia? Geographically, it links the two areas that Russia has already controlled, Luhansk and Donetsk and Donbass regions and Crimea, and it's right along the sea. And so I think holding that particular city allows Russia to link areas already under their control to control the the sea. And it was also contested in earlier Russia-Ukraine confrontations. So I imagine there's a certain, I don't know, ideological or kind of a revenge factor there, having taken it, lost it. Now they're taking it back. But it it definitely has, from a military perspective, a strategic benefit to control the sea and link areas already under their control. Now, Ukraine's leader, Zelensky, has even questioned whether humanitarian corridors actually exist in Ukraine. What's your take on that, Jake? 
Well, I think there's a humanitarian imperative and an urgency for the Ukrainians or for organizations on the ground to continue to advocate for humanitarian options for people to be able to flee and seek refuge. But do they exist in any meaningful sense of the word no? And should these be the priority of high-level negotiations with the UN or with third parties? I think not. I think these have to be, given the tactics that we've seen so far by the Russian military forces, these have to be negotiated one by one on a case-by-case basis, either by local commanders and and humanitarian organizations or local officials. Um, So no, these do not exist. There is no respect by the Russian Federation of safe passage for civilians or safe passage for humanitarian goods and and direct contravention of their obligations under the Geneva Convention and international law. Caitlin, let me ask you this. What needs to happen to improve agriculture and food security in in Ukraine right now? You know, I'll I'll borrow from what Jake said earlier is that the response needs to be creative, ambitious, and quick. When it comes to Ukraine, agriculture and food security in the country, I think the the best thing to do is support Ukraine's Ministry of Agrarian Policy and Food. They're the ones who are on the ground and they have an understanding of what areas are being targeted for the reasons that I mentioned, what where what food warehouses are being targeted at distribution points, and also how, how agricultural itself is being disrupted, where irrigation is not able to happen, where fertilizer can't be applied, where laborers aren't available. So I think the best thing to do is to get a sense from them and support their own efforts on the ground. Let me ask you both this as a final question. With targeting and killing civilians, with the humanitarian atrocities that we're just beginning to see, and we are only just beginning to see them, it's going to get much, much worse if this doesn't stop anytime soon. Is there ever going to be any accountability for the Russians once this is all over? Is there a way to make them accountable that really means something? What I'd like to say, just to build on what you mentioned, is the the effects of this around the world. I'll let Jake take the part about accountability, but we have talked about impacts on agriculture and food security in Ukraine. Because of this, we finally have estimates of what price increases might look like around the world in the short and medium term. We've seen from the FAO estimates that in the worst case scenario, prices of wheat could increase over 20%, and that the number of people who are undernourished around the world could increase by over 13 million because of this conflict. That's incredible. So, I mean, this really is a global conflict already. It is. And the other thing is, for all of the effects that I've mentioned so far in our conversation, every single one is entirely avoidable. We will experience disasters in the coming decades that um, that we can't avoid having to do with, you know, climate change and weather, if it, et cetera. But this one is entirely avoidable, which makes it all the more difficult to, to bear. Jake, how do we keep the Russians accountable? There's two different things to think about when we think about accountability for, for acts like this. You know, one is international justice mechanisms like the ICC or, you know, there have been tribunals set up in the, the ICTY for the former Yugoslavia or this, the tribunal for Rwanda or, you know, the, the international mechanism that exists in the International Criminal Court. I have a hard time believing that we're going to see that kind of justice and accountability mechanism. Right, we're not going to have Vladimir Putin on trial. Not unless the the state falls, right? You yeah. know, I mean, we saw in 1940s, whatever it was, we saw the trials for the the former, you know, German officials who Nuremberg led trials. the Nazi regime. 
the other accountability I think is already underway. And that's that the community of states have come together and demonstrated great resolve in unifying around an economic accountability. They've they've strangled Russia's economy with a pace that we've never seen before. They're going after individuals by targeting, you know, the the toys of the oligarchs. And so there is a certain amount of accountability or or redress already being felt. But I think this is why it's important to keep monitoring and tracking and and taking note of all these violations that happen. It's easy to throw up your hands and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. But making sure that we have accurate, clear, reliable data of all the atrocities that are being carried out, and as Caitlin said, voluntarily, this is avoidable. There was no reason for this. Having that historical record and being able to to bring it to bear if accountability mechanisms manifest, I think is extremely important and has to be, you know, part of what we emphasize in the days ahead. Will our economic punishments of Russia be toothless if China continues to support them, for instance? It's a bit beyond my professional remit. So I can't speculate as to whether or not they will be toothless. But I do think that same unity of effort that was brought to bear with respect to these sanctions packages on Russia should be brought to bear directly to the Chinese to say that if you do try to create a workaround for the Russian Federation, you will be inevitably and and in perpetuity linked to the crimes that are being carried out today. Jake, Caitlin, this is very helpful. Thank you very much for coming on Truth of the Matter and helping us understand these issues a little bit better. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 